0: Good morning. I have never gotten that in a church where I preached. <laughs> well, like you've heard, my name is Professor Yoder. I teach ministry here at Cornerstone. Um, yeah, more ministry students, come on. I also teach some of the Bible classes, so it is an absolute blast. It's an honor to be here with you guys today. Um, I've been around Cornerstone for a little while. I've been here actually 10 years. I was over at the seminary, we say across the pond, um, for nine years, and now I'm in my second year teaching undergrad here, working on a doctorate myself, so I've got a student hat that I put on a lot myself as well. So It it has been good to be part of this series this semester. I've tried to make as many chapel services as I can um, but as we continue the theme of the semester, our Christ our greatest friend, my job today is to explore like what it means to respond to this truth or this reality. Like how do we lean in, how do we experience Jesus as our genuine friend so that it's not just like. An idea in our heads, yeah, Jesus our great, great friend, okay, what now what, right? So as we begin, let me work, start with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to lead you through a little reflective exercise, sort of the kind of thing I do in my classes. So let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for today, we thank you for this week, Lord, I thank you for the worship team that led us to draw our eyes and our hearts to you, I pray that you bless them, Bless this time. May our hearts be drawn to you. May, may you be speaking your word into our hearts, me first and everyone else as well. And may we, may we just really be uh, caught by what your spirit is doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, before I get into, this, into the scripture, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to lead you through a reflective exercise. Um, I'm going to put four different uh, statements on the screen And what I want you to do is just pay attention to your response. It's like, what thoughts come to mind, what emotions come up, or what just, where do you go with it? Does anything happen at all? Okay, so there's four different statements. This is where I want to start before we get into, into the passage. Okay, here's first statement. God loves you. Okay, pretty simple been around cornerstone you've probably heard this a few times. <laughs> There's a really great sermon a number of weeks ago. I remember hearing in here about God's love out of Romans. okay, so pretty simple, pretty basic. first one, God loves you. second statement. when God thinks of you, he longs for you with a deep love. That one feels a little more what intimate, a little heavier, a little something more to it, how does it hit you to hear that God longs for you? Third statement, God is head head over heels and giddy with love for you. That one sounds a little silly, doesn't it? We're talking about the creator of the universe, This is actually language I I read in a book a number of years ago, and it just caught me like, that's an odd way to put it. And yet I wonder, so I'll ask it as a question, what if Jesus described God in this way? The story we're going to get to in a little bit explains all, all four of these lines. But how do you respond to that? He just absolutely is head over heels for you. Okay, last one. When you come to mind, God rejoices over you with singing. When he thinks of you, when he thinks of me, when he thinks of us worshiping, he starts singing. Hmm. So how do those statements hit you? Some common responses I hear, I've been working with students here at Cornerstone for about 10 years, um, proud of that, I was in pastoral ministry. Um, I get different responses often, you might be responding in different ways. One is, um, sort of like I described before, okay, yeah, I know God loves me. Okay, Darryl, Well, now what? I remember a student saying that, okay, so what? <laughs> I would call that the numb response, <laughs> sort of like, okay, got it. Now what? Okay? The number response. I believe it. I believe it. It's true. I know I'm saved. That's that's not the question here. Um, but the numbers. Another one would be, yeah, I'm so far away from that. I, I don't even know how to think about that. I'm not sure what I believe about God. If, God. if God loves me, he's somewhere else, or I'm somewhere else, I would just call this the distant response, right? A third one would be, I'll just call it the shame response, like you believe in Jesus, this is real for you, but it's kind of in your head, it's a, you believe in Jesus and you believe that he loves you and yet when, I, when you read these statements, something painful actually comes up, something related to wounds in your past, something related to your story. And it kind of more forms as a question, like, look, I know he does, but does he really, does he really love me? You know, I may believe it, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Then, so for some of you, another, another response would be, like, you are, you are all over this, and you're way ahead of me, and God's love has become so rich and powerful for you, that it really matters, and it changes things in your life. And you're eager for this, like, that would be, maybe I'll call it the hungry response. So just pause for just another moment. Where what, what, what happens in you as you think about these statements? The story we're going to get to today um, is actually a reflective exercise as well. Um, the question we often, I often get when I think about these, these statements is, is it okay for us to talk about the creator of the universe in these terms? Does it feel right? Does it feel... Odd. <clears throat> I want to get, the short answer is I, I not only think it's okay, I think it's necessary. I think we need this. Okay, so the passage I want to spend some time on, Jesus is really offering a reflective exercise of his own, and instead of statements, he tells a story, and the story stirs up some strong response. The story brings, causes some to flock to Jesus, and, then this, and the story also offends a number of people. So if you have your Bibles you want to turn to it, you, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you want to put, I'll pull up on your phone. I got a few of the passages I'll put on the screen. The story itself, I, I more almost just want you to hear it than anything. But so just to set the context a little bit, we're going to be, so the beginning of Luke, um, we're going to be in chapter uh, 15 verse 11 is where we're going to get to. Um, but Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 2 sets it up. You've got it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So notice there's two groups. We have to pay attention to this. This is context for where and why Jesus tells the story. You got tax collectors and sinners on the one hand, right? So these tax collectors are the traitors. They are uh, Jewish folks who have partnered with the Roman Empire and outside, they're, they're they're considered traitors by in Israel. Sinners then, we use that word in one way, like just we're all sinners. Um, there, and in this context, it's more like a category. It's people who really weren't serious about following the law. They were just kind of living outside of what the Old Testament law, what the Hebrew Bible taught Israel. So then you have the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So the Pharisees, these guys, well, I mean, these are the gatekeepers of spirituality. These, these, these guys together, Pharisees and teachers of the law. They, their job, and if we can try to understand where they're coming from, it helps us understand the stories. Their job, their role, their goal was to help Israel become faithful enough to the law that God would step in and rescue them. It's a little misguided, but that was their role. That was their, their hope, their to help people be faithful enough that God would actually step in and rescue them. The tax collectors and sinners were part of the problem, especially sinners who weren't even really trying to follow the law. Although the Pharisees and the experts of the law knew the law, they had lost God's heart in it. And Jesus confronts that over and over and over So the passage we're gonna look at today is where Jesus responds to this with a series of stories. They're parables, word pictures that express the heart of God. The first first two are real short, and I won't spend a ton of time on them. I want to dwell on the third one, which is a little bit longer. The first story is, um, I want to mention them because they set up a theme that's really important. The first one is a story about a shepherd who loses a sheep, and the second one is a story about a woman who loses some money. They're really short. You could read them really quick. Both of them lose something. They feverishly work to try to find it. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and go and finds the one that was lost and the woman goes all through her whole house trying to find this lost coin. Okay? And both of the stories end the same way. And this sets up a theme that's building in this chapter. Once they find the the thing that's lost, they rejoice. And Jesus is making this point. Both of them, the shepherd and the woman, go, they go gather their friends, celebrate me, rejoice because I found my lost sheep. Celebrate with me, rejoice because I found my lost coin. And then Jesus makes the point. He makes it very clear what he's trying to say. I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees. You're upset that I'm spending time with these folks. I tell you, God rejoices in the presence of the angels. It's like you're watch, the angels are watching the Father, watching God just party and rejoice that what was lost has been found, that over one sinner who repents... So that's setting up. That's right before our, the story I want to spend time on, which is a very familiar story. You probably know where I'm going with this. A lot of, a lot of you will be, will be familiar with the story. If, you, if, you, if you're not, you probably have heard parts of it. Uh, Jesus sees the tax collectors and the sinners gathering to him, and he hears the Pharisees complaining, and he says, look, God rejoices. He celebrates when sinners come back to him. To the Pharisees, you should rejoice too. And then he tells this story. It's a little bit longer, so I wanna spend a few minutes with it. It's the story about a father with two sons. You guys familiar with that one? One son takes his father's money, runs off, wastes it all, ends up coming back pretty humbled, and the father takes him back, and there's an older brother who's sort of rude. You you get the idea? Okay, that's the story. I want you to sit with me with it, and I'm gonna walk through the story just in three parts. There's three main characters, the father and the two sons, and we'll just look at each one and just make some observations. If you want to follow along, you can. Um, I, I didn't put all the, screen, the verses up here. If you want to just close your eyes and, and just let the story come to you, that's fine too. I want you to picture what it's like there. This is what stories do, and this is what Jesus is doing with, with this parable. So you've got two, a father and two sons, <clears throat> a, son, a young son with a rebellious heart, and an older son with a hard heart. It starts in verse 11. <clears throat> First, the part about the younger son. Jesus continued... There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the, father, or the younger son got together all he had, set off for a, far, a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a f- severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, as a, to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Okay, so pause the story. Just thinking about this younger son, Jesus leaves a lot of details out of the story, if you think about it. We don't really know where he went. We just know it's outside of Israel, probably far far away, a distant country. We don't know what specifically the son did. Jesus doesn't get into those details. If you know the story, you know the older brother accuses him of sleeping with prostitutes, which is a little unclear how he would know what he was doing, but we don't really know. Jesus doesn't bother with those details. We also don't know how long he was gone. Is this a year, He blew through the money in a year, or was this like 20 years? Again, we don't know. But Jesus does highlight a few specific things that we need to sit with and pay attention to. The first thing is just how selfish, uncaring, and disrespectful this request was. I don't know how it hits us in our culture. I don't think we can fully appreciate it unless you put yourself in that setting. But scholars think he was probably pretty young. Uh, If he's single, Probably means he's in late teens. So you're, you're thinking about a teenager who wants his dad to give him his inheritance as if the dad has already died so he can take it and go do what he wants. Kind of disrespectful. <laughs> Here's the other thing. If there's only two sons, in a patriarchal culture, the older son would get a double portion. So you divide it up in three parts. The older son would get two-thirds and the younger son would get a third. A third of the estate. That would mean the father has to sell land. That means the father has to lay off workers. This is monstrously disruptive. And if you look at the words that Jesus uses, you don't see this in the English real well, but if you look at the words Jesus uses, you can see the pain that it's causing the father. Um, it says, the son asks for the estate, for his inheritance or his part of the estate. But then it says, he divided his property between them. The Greek word there is bios. It means, it's the word life. He divided his life between them. It's like this younger son has just ripped a part of his life away. The father is experiencing this in probably ways that the son could never appreciate. It's tearing his life apart. The second thing I think about here that Jesus is really clear about is whatever the guy was doing, whatever that is the wild living in, involves, it was self-destructive. Notice that Jesus doesn't focus on likely damage that he did to someone else. Um, he's focused on how self-destructive these his actions are. He, he ends up in poverty and suffering. The bad things he was doing were destroying him, feeding pigs. An unclean animal is the lowest of the low. But don't miss this, he's also deeply lonely. No one gave him anything. So he's pleading. Okay, so last thing is just that the consequences of his decisions is what led to this. That's what Jesus is focusing on, the the consequences of his own decisions. God often allows us to experience the results of our own sin, we hit the bottom, which is actually a grace. Many of us, I won't make you raise your hands. I'll raise mine. I've had this experience more than once. You hit the bottom, and you've got nowhere to look but up, and you have to face yourself. This is a picture, a painting from, uh, by Rembrandt of this story, a famous one if you Google it. It just shows the sun absolutely torn apart, by his own life, by his own decisions, and the father receiving him, and that's the older brother to the right. Okay, I can't tell you how often I have sat with people in their spiritual journey listened to their stories and they describe some season of deep pain where God has met them in a profound and new way and it changed everything for them. Okay, for some people, this is where faith starts, for some people, faith starts and builds slower, and then there's a time when God meets them in a really profound way. Uh, uh, there's a, a pastor in Rockford um, at Magnified Church that I, I love this quote. I've heard from him. It's, a, it's one of the few quotes I say a lot um, by pastors. It's a, he just says, the day of, best day of your life is the day you face yourself. Pastor Louis at Magnified Church. The best day of your life best day, is the day you face yourself. That's what's happening with this younger son. If we want to experience Jesus as a genuine friend, we have to face ourselves. If we want to deep down know that God is for us, that he's not against us, this isn't about wallowing in self-condemnation. It's about Turning to the Father and coming to him and experiencing his love in a way that matters, in a way that changes things, in a way that is real. So experiencing Jesus as a genuine friend flows from this experience of God's love. That's one of the points, I think, of this story. We have to come back to the Father and it will change us deeply. But really, the story is really more about the father than about the sons. So let's look at the next little bit about the father. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, so while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, go get the best robe and put it on him. Put the ring on, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's feast and celebrate. Just like the shepherd and the woman. I found what I've lost. Let's throw a party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. Just stop and think about how shocking that would be. This son took a third of the estate, laid off workers, wasted it. And the father's not asking for any restitution. How do you think the other workers saw this? You're just gonna let him back in here? What? That's the story Jesus tells it's not even that. This is where it ought to help. We ought to get a little uncomfortable about this next part. The father's response is pretty undignified. We could almost say a little embarrassing. Any embarrassing fathers out there? You love dad jokes way too much. I like this. He might even be a little giddy. Look at how he describes. He runs out to him. In this culture, the patriarch wouldn't go running. Children run. The patriarch doesn't, but he runs out after him. It literally says, not through his arms around, that's the English version of that. The words in the Greek are he fell on his neck. It's like relief. And he kissed him affectionately. This isn't a formal, you know, kiss. Welcome back, son. We have a talk to do. We have to figure out what's going on here. Where have you been? Imagine your dad doing this. Make this really uncomfortable. (laughs) 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 Throws his arms around you, hangs on you, and you're thinking about what you've done. I mean, wouldn't it be like, Dad, come on. I don't deserve this. Stop. Come on, Dad. Jesus offers a story like this to describe the creator of the universe. (laughs) A father who feels deeply for his children, who's willing to embarrass himself, even if it offends his servants, even if it offends his other son. Why? Out of just pure joy to have his son back. If that doesn't warm our hearts, something's getting in the way. We need to pay attention to that. What catches your spirit the most? Is it, is it how the, the father's willing to embarrass himself and it's sort of like, oh my gosh, he, like maybe, is that like, what did this feel like? Or is it the son sitting there thinking as his dad's hanging on him, like, you don't know what I've done. I haven't even told you. Just let me just just to pause before I close with the older son. Um, if you need to return to the father, feeling the weight of our sin is vital. Being humbled by it, don't resist it. Okay, but remember that the father is looking for you. And when, he, when you come to him, he's not going to be, you know, distant approval, unsure, waiting for you to prove yourself. He's, he's running out to find you. Can you let this image shape who the creator of the universe is in your heart and in your mind? That's what Jesus is inviting. There's a verse in the Old Testament that describes this. Is not Ephraim, that's one of the tribes of Israel, my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. One more. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I wonder if Jesus had those prophets in his mind as he was telling this story. Last little bit. If we don't, what happens if we don't open our hearts to this? What happens if we just believe that God, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we go to work serving him, doing doing what we can to bring others to him, but we never really open our hearts to experience his love? The older son shows us what happens. Look at verses 25 to 32 as I wrap up here, running out of time. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, the, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what, he, what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, was, he has him back safe and sound. I'm going fast. I probably should have read that with like, your brother has come. Your father killed the fatted calf. I don't know what the tone of voice was. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And his father went out and pleaded with him. He, he, he answered his father, look, all these years, listen to this, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat for me to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property and with prostitutes and comes home, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father says, my son, it's actually the word child, my child, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So just as, before you go, feel the rage feel the anger feel the exhaustion he's been serving his father for his whole life what has the experience been for him he's had access to the father in everything he has and all he's felt he's felt like a slave not like a son both sons are lost both sons need to be broken both sons need to feel the Father's love in a deep way. One ran off and needed to come back. The other one stayed there and needed to come back. Does that make sense? So here's the question, then I'll let you go. Last question. What does softening your heart to embrace the reality of God's love for you What does that mean for you? What what would it take for you to enter into that? Is it a conversation you need to have? Is it to sit with this passage, this story a little bit more? What would it look like for you to face yourself, whether you're the one who ran or the one who stayed and worked real hard, face yourself and remember and even be captivated by the reality of God's love. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this story. And the rich, um, unsettling picture that it paints. Unsettling in the best sense of it. That you are a God who um, is sovereign over all things. And yet you come and you meet us when we return to you. And you run out and you love us. And that we can be with you. I pray for each of the students and others in this room, that our hearts would be willing to just open up to consider that you love us as deeply as this story describes. And may we move toward you, whether that's repentance of sin or just opening our heart to trust what is already real. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.